1: Road to fans. Welcome to the Parastyle Podcast on a Wednesday. We're talking some USC football with our friend Dan Weber, uscfootball.com beat writer and columnist. A lot of different topics to get to. You guys have sent in a lot of questions. I know it's the offseason. I know we took last week off, so questions have piled up. we got a lot to get to today. It's a packed show. If you have any questions for us, podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address, or you can call us at 424 254 nine one four one that's four two four two five four nine one four one you can call leave a voicemail or send us a text and we do have a text on that line for dan today um a lot of different ways to get a hold of us so we do appreciate you giving us the feedback for the show if you want to subscribe you can do it on itunes we have our own url itunes.com slash peristyle podcast uh, we're on the google play and stitcher radio and audio boom and tune in radio and all of that, so a lot of different ways you can consume the show. We do appreciate all the feedback and any kind of positive reviews. You could leave for us. We've been doing this since 2008, if you can believe that, uh, talking USC football. And we're going to continue that today with Dan Weber. Dan, how are you today?
0: Uh, doing good, doing good. Yes, looking forward. This is probably, you know, since we've been here. For some reason, you know, you could say in some ways it compares a little bit to the year with Lane Kiffin and Matt Barkley had decided to come back and the Trojans were, you know, so highly thought of and all that. And I know, you know, looking back on it, you never felt really comfortable about (laughs) a lot of that. It's just, there was just something, uh, there's a different feeling this time, you know, it's more, well, and maybe it, you know, comes off of the, off of the Rose bowl and, you know, the Washington game at the end of the year. I mean, that, that team was coming off an Oregon win at Oregon. Didn't get to go to a bowl game. So maybe that's different. And that team had Lane Giffen as the head coach. And, and maybe that makes a difference uh, that it was hard to ever feel really, you know, really solid. But you, you got a, a, a more solid feel about, about these guys. And, and maybe one of the other things is they're more removed from when USC was really great. And and maybe don't take anything for granted, whereas, you know, closer to the Pete Carroll era, maybe it was hard to really understand what was all involved. And and UFC getting to where where UFC, you know, eventually got. And it's like you've got more of a, a sense of this is something we really have to work hard at and, you know, get better at and compete, you know, with one another and make one another better and all that you've got that feeling maybe with this team that that there's a lot of that there and then then and there's Sam Darnold factor that, that that plays into everything so but uh, yeah this is kind of a neat off season because every day you see something in some media somewhere about you know next season and what's going to happen or the next NFL draft or all of those things and and USC is now relevant again there are very few of those discussions that go on that that don't have USC in there in some way or another, and and that's kind of neat because for a while you felt like you're on the outside looking in, and that isn't the you know that's not the case anymore.
1: Yeah, certainly being relevant is uh, what you know USC fans you know obviously strive for greatness, but it's hard to be great when you're not relevant, and USC is that now. Um, so. All good stuff. We want to talk about a lot of different things on the show today. Like I said, it's a packed one. You know, the kind of future of the team. Right now, the team's going through finals, so it's kind of a weird off-season time. Summer workouts will be starting up, you know, fairly soon. But uh, right now, it's uh, finals time. We, you know, still wrap up a little bit with the NFL draft. We have some questions on that. Um, the Coliseum renovation is in full swing. We're going to talk to you about that stuff, too. Uh, but before we jump into all that, this is a little kind of side note. Um, I'm not going to mention any names because I didn't, uh, check with this person before I want to bring it up. But, um, 25 years ago, this past weekend was the LA riots. And, uh, I was actually a junior at USC. It was the night before, uh, our first day of finals. It was a Tuesday night and, uh, when everything started to go down and, uh, Wednesday was, you know, crazy. Um, and we had to, you know, we had to evacuate and, you know, finals were canceled. I ended up taking one final when I got back, but we were gone for like five days. And, uh, right in the middle of everything. I mean, it was insane to see the helicopters were flying over. You'd see them on TV and burning buildings. And I mean, we were right in the middle, you know, ground zero of the, I think, I think they call it like the, the largest civil unrest and the most destructive civil unrest in American history. Um, so it's crazy. You know, 25 years and I took some pictures afterwards, uh, when we got back. Um, one of my roommates actually went and took video that first night and there was crazy stuff on the video and I can't find it. I don't know who has it now with like a VHS tape video, but there was guys with guns like burning buildings, all kinds of stuff. But when we came back, I took a lot of still photos, just walk, you know, we went drove around campus, around the Coliseum, everything and campus was fine. But the, all these buildings around it, like our pizza place, uh, you know, shoe stores, all these things are just gone, you know, and they're, they're rubble. So I took a bunch of pictures of them. I shared them on Facebook. I think it was like five years ago for the 20th anniversary and I re-shared it again recently, and I posted it on the Peristyle. And it's funny that people – I mean, it's not funny. It's a terrible tragedy. But the stories that came out – and there was one photo of – I think it was like a beauty salon that was burned down, and there was two women kind of going through the rubble. And you could see it's from 1992, and this woman had like real big frizzy hair and kind of a strange-looking dress on. And you're like, what what kind of fashion is that? And I made a little comment in the Facebook thing. And uh, someone on the Peristyle, one of our posters – It's like, those are my sisters. (laughs) So from 25 years ago, he identifies his sisters who lived like right behind that building. And he told me the story. It's like one of his sisters was like, there's all the, you know, the burning, the the building was burning. And they were like, we could, there's all these products in there. Should we get it out? And she was like, can we go save those products? And his sister's like, no, you get arrested for looting. So they just kind of let everything sit there and it all kind of burned down. But it was just a strange time. But the fact that, you know, this 25-year-old photo that I shared on the message board, and one of the dudes on the Peristyle, Dan. It's like his sisters that were there checking out the robot, like we were.
0: That's amazing. I I I run into that all the time. Somehow in sports, it just seems like it cuts down the distance between people. And and I can't even begin to tell you how many different times that's happened to me. You know, over my career. And it's just like, did that really happen? You know, it's just amazing. I will say this. My first time ever covering a USC game was 1988 in the Notre Dame game. And then 1989 I was I was uh I put together a traveling college football Hall of Fame and went we traveled 26,500 miles all over the country and we did do the USC Ohio State game in 1989. And uh also did the USC Notre Dame game at Notre Dame, so I got USC twice that year. And it was hard for me to believe a couple of years later that right where we were and all the places we got, that, that what was happening was happening. And I watched the um, National Geographic, if you get a chance, has a two-hour documentary.
1: It's really good. a lot
0: of video. Really good, that, yeah. That I hadn't ever seen before. And it just takes your breath away. And I know one of the saddest things that I can – I can think of is uh, Mark Brown, a USC guy who's the anchor on channel seven was a young reporter. And he went uh, now, he went back to this little shopping mall where he started to cover the riots. And he said, there's something there that happened that will never leave him. And he said, somebody had started uh, when they were starting setting fires to businesses, they were they had set fire to this pet store, and they could hear the pets inside. You know, it was burning, and nobody could get them out. And he said, "That will never, that will never leave me." You know, the thought of that, the sound of that, and you you know that kind of brings you home, and you think, "My goodness, how did this happen?" You know, fifty nine people killed. It's just, it just almost impossible to imagine uh you know when you go there today and you don't even think a thing about it uh pretty amazing uh stuff but if you get a chance to see that that national geographic documentary it's uh it's really worth uh you know looking at
1: yeah i checked it out it's like two hours no commercials all footage and there's no commentary it's a documentary without they're not putting their own and some people were critical of that because there's no commentary but just Hey, this is what was going on. And they show all this footage. It's some of its home video, but a lot of it's news stuff that was put together. It's crazy. All the bad decisions that were made. I mean, when you have a disaster like this, there's multiple, multiple bad decisions, like one after another after another. That's how something like this happens. And it was just so many uh, in a row. And, and and for USC to be right in the middle of it, and I remember the next year, uh, admissions were an all-time low or whatever. I mean, it was like a low of 50 years or whatever, something crazy. Uh, you know, and you know, it was, it was insane. I mean, we were right in the middle of this horrible, horrible, uh, you know, civil unrest and it lasted for days. I mean, it was going on for days. You could see the smoke still and the national guard and everything. I mean, yeah, you can check it out. We, I put those pictures up on the peristyle and I do apologize, but I've kind of thought about, we're sort of doing this now, which I don't want to get into too much more, but, um, doing like, there's gotta be a lot of, there's a lot of good stories on the message board. There was one story, that someone said he was almost he was on a motorcycle. He jumped a curb. He would have been like taken down by rioters and beaten up. And he's goes, There was a pizza delivery guy that got it instead of him. Like a guy I think it was just on a bike. He was like on a motorcycle. And I said, one of my roommates or whatever saw that outside of Cardinal Gardens. I was like, Was that where it was? He goes, Yes, exactly. So like there's some similar stories wow. there. Um and well, so if know, there's people one of the, want to write the, in the
0: things that kept hitting me watching the the National Geographic documentary was how it would just you know explode at an intersection and you'd see people stopping like a half a block away and trying to figure out what the heck is going on in that intersection and then realizing I better make a U turn and get the heck yes. out of here and go anywhere just not there and and you put yourself in those positions and think, you know, here we're we're down there every day, and thinking about what that must have been like. People trying to go home, and stuff is happening that you can't even imagine is happening right in the middle of intersections in these streets where you you travel on every day. It's um, it, 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 you know, and you just see those cars stopping and then looking people looking and then trying to figure out uh uh-oh maybe i better and then they make a big u-turn and head the other way and hope they can you know get out of there but uh but that's uh that's pretty amazing stuff
1: yeah and uh so i don't know we maybe we'll do like a podcast that talks about it with different stories i actually talked to the guy from the message board and you know maybe get his sisters on and uh i can even have some like you know college friends but if you're, if you were at USC at the time or you were around there and had some stories, email me podcast at USC and maybe we'll put it together. You know, I, I, probably should have done this before the riots, but it just, once I posted those story, like those pictures and the stories started to come out, it just kind of got me thinking. I'm like, well, you know, it might be interesting to kind of talk about it. Um, you know, 25 years is a long time, but man, it was, it was crazy. And I, I mean, I remember we were, st- you know, studying for finals. Uh, you know, I was an engineering student. It was like, you know, intense. It was really hard. We were driving to Kinko's and we had to make copies of a bunch of stuff. So there was four of us in this little car and there's a lot of homeless people that were around and we would see them all the time. And I used to do like can drive for the homeless when I was in school. Like, you know, there was no like bad blood or anything, but I remember I'll never forget like this was after the verdicts that something shifted and we were outside of Kinko's on Figueroa and some of the normal people, the homeless people we would see and, and talk to, there was a different air. There was a, it was sense that like you could just tell there was a sense of empowerment there. Like they knew something was going down. Like you just kind of felt, I it's hard to explain. I've never felt like that in my life. Something was happening and it was going to be bad. And we knew we were like, we got to get back. And so you, we make the copies and we get back to the apartment and you're just there, just riveting, trying to study, but watching on television and not getting word that finals were canceled till like two in the morning and hearing Random horror stories about buildings on campus burning, which was all untrue, just like rumors and stuff. Um, but it was, it was insane. And like, if your girlfriend's in another apartment, you're trying to call, you know, call them. I called my mom, Dan, like that night, like, hey, mom, I'm okay. She's in Boston on the East Coast. And she's like, I'm glad. Did you get your financial aid paperwork in? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, and then she like hung up or whatever. She, she had no idea what was going on. And the next morning she called, you know, is it, Frantic calling me, like, what's going on? I'm like, Mom, I, you really like, just blew me off. I told you, like, we're, you know, surviving the riots, and you're like, asking me about my financial aid paperwork. So I, I still remember it vividly, even though 25 years ago, obviously, because it was such a traumatic and crazy time.
0: You know, I was back in Cincinnati, and basically, um, what you didn't pick up and that you, you do from the documentary is uh, what was happening, like, at the Justice Center and how many people. You know, the threats there and, you know, how how strong that was, you know, it wasn't just in the riot areas. And, and I don't think that got that, that got much coverage at all. And you saw the, you know, the outrage of, of, you know, thousands of people and the fact that that there weren't enough police. You know, I don't know if there would have ever been enough anywhere. Uh, but uh, but there were there was a lot of that that you didn't pick up you know if you weren't out here watching you know local LA TV because there was just so much uh that you couldn't convey all that to the rest of the country so, so some of that was really shocking to me uh that I I didn't know uh all of what was going on that was uh, pretty amazing stuff yeah I'm sorry what and then what, what kind yeah of, and then uh, i was thinking now i mean i know there are people who evaluate these things uh and I know I've seen reports that the Figueroa corridor from downtown to USC is the single most impactful, uh, urban development in the last 25 years in America. That there's no, no city, no place has done as much and has benefited as much, uh, from a single, you know, development as, uh, as what's happened on the, on the Figueroa corridor out to usc and clearly the biggest driver there has been usc that there's no question that uh usc deserves credit for for so much of what's happened after the riots in the last uh, quarter century that that you know you just try to imagine how different figueroa is from what it was like uh you know in 1992
1: yeah, well we I'm sorry again. We went a little bit long on the riot stuff, but it's just obviously it's important to me and uh, I know important to a lot of people at USC. Um podcast at uscfootball.com. If you have a good story, let me know or you can call us uh 424-254-9141. Um and we'll move on uh because there's another topic that we it's kind of funny, we can't talk a lot about uh but there were some interesting developments going on. It's it should be happening more happening this week, Dan. Maybe give uh, the, the latest update on the Coliseum renovation stuff.
0: Yeah, if you're a, a Trojan Athletic Fund uh, a donor, uh, or if you're a season ticket holder, you should be getting um, uh, in the mail uh, brochures and explanations and diagrams and charts and all the and and it's embargoed uh, for us uh, until they're out. Uh, so they're in the process of of, of being distributed, uh, you know, to all those people, but it explains, uh, you know, a lot's been going on and we reported on a lot of, you know, the design and, and, and the, uh, you know, the work that's gone into trying to get, you know, commitments for the, the founder suites and, and all the other things that, you know, that they're going to need to underwrite as has been reported the $270 million Coliseum project but uh but that's underway this week we've got a we've got a big story ready to go as soon as the embargo is off and uh it's a kind of combination uh a story and commentary because it's hard to do one without the other when it, it it comes to to where it looks like the coliseum is going and where the where the plans say it is going in the next 2 years but uh but there's going to be a lot happening in the next few days. And, uh, and we hope you'll, you'll take a look at a, a a very detailed, uh, you know, presentation of, of what's happening and, uh, and how it's going to impact, uh, you know, everybody from, you know, the casual fan to, you know, the, the person who's a, a big, big, big time, $10 million, you know, donor. Uh, there's, there's a lot in there and, you know, there's a lot, it's going to be done to the coliseum uh you know that's very very much needed obviously for uh probably a half century of of deferred uh maintenance and and renovation and all that kind of thing and then there's some other uh design decisions that uh that that we've already uh questioned so we're not you know telling thing out telling anything out of school uh but uh but uh could be uh, could be as soon as today, uh, when when this all when this all hits in terms of uh, where we stand right now and where we're going and how we're how we're going to get there in the Coliseum.
1: Yeah, not uh, unfortunately, not a lot of positive uh, news, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, there there
0: is, is, there is positive stuff uh, in terms of how the USC athletic department has approached this and. In terms of, of the fundraising part of it, in terms of getting support for it and all that. So I think from that standpoint, from the things that, you know, the athletic department has been able to control, um, uh, I think they've done a very good job, uh, with, within the parameters that, that they have to operate. Uh, but to go into more than that might be, you know, telling more than I, I probably should tell. But, okay. uh, um, <laughs>
1: We but, don't want you to do that. It,
0: it, it's kind of, we try to have a balanced approach, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. Uh, here's the good. Here's the what we'd like to have seen. And, and there are just differences of opinion, you know. We yeah. can look at it one way and somebody else can look at it another and say, you know, I think that's fine. And we can say, mm, I don't think so. So
1: So make sure you check it so, out. It should be this week. when, Whenever the embargo's lifted, Dan has a, a great piece going up. Uh, long one, a uh, lot of details on that. Then if you have, I was kind of debating having you on later in the week, Dan, because then after the story comes out, but we could have you on again. We could do a special podcast just on that. We might need it. So I want you guys to read yeah. the story. Uh, you might get a note. If you got a notification that your seat's moving or whatever and you're, you're well, happy you're mad, that, yeah. let us know. Yeah,
0: I, you know. I, I can't go into those details yet. They won't, they won't get that level of specificity. What they will get is, uh, this is what's, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and who it's going to have. I mean, I think this is probably not, uh, uh, breaking the embargo. Uh, it's going to happen to everybody. So, this, it's a total, uh, total approach to the Coliseum. So, there won't be any one group that says, well, why us? <coughs> Although, there might be some, who think, why us more than others? Yes, uh, But uh, it's an, it, it, you'll find it, I think, interesting as to, as to how they're going to, you know, approach uh, uh, the entire project from here on out.
1: Yeah, so definitely, we'll, you know, we'd love to do a reaction show. So if you're affected, I mean, obviously everyone's going to be, call us at 424-254-9141 or email us, podcast at com and we'll, uh, we'll be happy to talk with you about it and and discuss it further once the embargo uh, is lifted, which right now it is not, so we can't go into too much more detail. So um, we also want to talk about the draft a little bit, Dan. Uh, we had a question from Eddie uh, in Whittier from he's from Whittier, uh, Richard Nixon Town. He said, "Long, uh, long time listener, first time writing in, and he he texted this in. It's a long text message, but he texted this into our voicemail line." Uh, question for Dan. As I sat down and watched parts of the NFL draft, I thought to myself, geez, what in the world is going on? This is not the first time our juniors go undrafted. He was talking about Damian Mama. There has been many, many players that have followed the same footsteps and fell short of the goal of being drafted. I think back there to the likes of uh, Dion Bailey, George Uko, Xavier Grimble, George Farmer, Damian Mama, et cetera. With that being a trend of falling short, why is it that these guys continue to leave early? Why work so hard? and unfortunately go undrafted, like uh, what are these agents telling them or the coaches? I know ultimately is there, uh, it's their choice, but uh, why do it if you're not for sure drafted like a Dory Jackson, uh, Juju Smith, uh, Sewage Cravens, Leonard Williams? Uh, is the Matt Barkley decision still hurting these guys and making them think twice about staying? Can you please fill me in with both your thoughts? And as always, fight on. Uh, he says, uh, "Wish these guys the best." He goes, "P.S. Wish these guys the best in the NFL." Eddie from Whittier.
0: A uh, uh, good question, Eddie. Uh, I would say this. Uh, let's use the the one example we have this year of, of Damian Mama. I do think um, you know agents can be very uh, you know positive in terms of they of what they think your outcome is going to be and. And, and people who want to hear that um, listen and, and kind of nod their heads. I know, from what I understand, there were people telling him they thought he'd go in the first three rounds. Those were not people who were coaching at USC. I think, from what I, I get, and try to have a little more on this in the war room, the best they thought would be, Happened for Damien would be somewhere in the seventh round if things went well for him. It was really hard to overcome that, uh, 5.8840. You know, and you're the, you know, the guy that the NFL network shows over and over and over again running against Rich Eisen in the run, rich, run part of the, you know, their NFL draft coverage, uh, That's hard to overcome. And I think it it made it hard. If you're a personnel guy at one of those NFL teams, it might be hard to put Damien's name out there. Uh, and so often the NFL does look for reasons not to draft you. Uh, and uh, I think Damien, you know, gave him some of those reasons. Uh, so I guess the other question though, uh and i know we always had this you know went by the standard that you know pete enforced it was if you're not going to be a first round pick or if you're not going to be the top guy at your position you shouldn't go although i think you can look at it the other side had damien stayed would he be would he be faster next year i don't know that you know that that's the case um you know there are times when kids are just ready to move on you know that school isn't the most important thing in their life. Uh, And, you know, seeing if they've got a career in in the NFL is, and for them and their family, it's the decision. Uh, Now, would it have been the same decision if, you know, they would have gone into it saying, you know, if you're lucky, you're seventh round, but you could just as easily be unlucky. Uh, Does that change? uh you would think so but maybe if you're really determined that this is what you want to do and you don't want to wait another year you go ahead and do it i mean everybody's had different reasons like george farmer i think his thinking was he couldn't even get he couldn't get insurance because of his injuries and so had he come back to his senior year got injured you know he'd have been out of luck he figured i think at this point he figured if I'm going to get injured, I might as well get injured in the NFL or trying to get into the NFL. And and so I think that was that was a defensible uh, way to look at it. And he's still kind of, you know, on the margins uh, with Seattle and the practice squad and, and that as a running back now. So how that plays out for George, I don't know. Uh, you know, for some of the other guys, it, it's kind of played out or not played out, you know, they've you know, they've, they've been around and they've gotten an earlier start. Uh, and I think mostly those guys have been coming back and, and getting their degree or trying to get their degree. I think if, if it's a, a decision where I'm not even going to try, I'm not close enough, the heck with the, the UFC degree, then it's probably a really bad decision. But if, if it incorporates the ability to come back and get a degree, uh, then I think you kind of got to let them you kind of got to let them uh, make their own decision and give them the most information you can possibly give them which i think in this case the u s c coaches uh did give him really good information that was absolutely on the money and uh wasn't wasn't uh enough to to dissuade uh, uh Damien.
1: We had, um, there was a couple other kind of questions along that uh, same vein. Stephen Poway wanting to know, he thinks the NBA does a better job of providing information to these early enrollees. Could the NFL do a better job? Um, and then Tarek wants to know, what can Clay Helton do to convince players and families the best options to stay at USC?
0: Huh. Well, I think there's where a coach is kind of in the middle because you don't you know, if you push too hard, I think, for example, uh, the, the case that always comes up is Pete Carroll and, and Mark Sanchez. And, you know, Mark's the highest, he's a quarterback that was taken higher than any quarterback in USC history. Did he need another year or would it have benefited another year? I don't know. I and mean, he might have benefited. And then he, maybe they would have, you know, not really gone all out as they did in his junior year four times, and the rest of the time they kind of played it safe. So would he have benefited from another year? I don't know. But you'd have been asking him to pass up some really, you know, the the opportunity that, that he, you know, going as high as he did in the first round. Man, that's hard to – and I think in that case, Pete came off as a little bit self-interested more than what's the best thing, you know, for Mark at that, at that point in time. And you could make the case that asking him to come back was the best thing for Mark, but that's not how it came off. So I think coaches have to have to be careful in trying to, you know, I mean, this isn't Alabama, and it isn't one of those where you try to get everybody, you know, everybody has an obligation to come back, maybe in some people's worlds. Uh, but I think USC, you've got to want what's best for the kid. And, and while well, you can make the case that a Dory, for example, could have come back, that has to be completely up to a Dory. What do I want? What's the best thing? Well, you know, do I love being in college and want my degree? And, uh, and I'm not worried about, my, you know, my family will be fine and all of those things. That's what you want a Dory or Juju to make that decision. I know everybody, you know, talks about Juju being the youngest player in the draft. Uh, and is that a negative? Well, it becomes a positive when he gets that chance to negotiate that first free agent contract, uh, when he's 24 or whatever. Uh, so, you know, he's starting his career, maybe be a little bit young now, although as it turns out, he's the highest guy on the, on the Steelers draft board, they tell us, uh, in the second round. And so they obviously really really like Juju for all the things they like the the Tennessee Titans really like Adoree for you know three things that they needed out of this draft and Adoree gives them two uh so they're really excited about Adoree so for those guys they went early and and it worked out for them so um well it's hard to to know i mean Juju got drafted by the Steelers and you talk about does the NFL give him enough information? I I think that's hard to know. I mean, Juju didn't have any, you know, workout with him, any personal meetings with him. He uh, had the typical combine 15 minute interview, but he had no idea that the Steelers were going to draft him or that he was that, you know, the highest guy left on their board in the second round. Uh, uh, so I don't, I don't know how you, you know, guarantee that the NFL gives him enough um information if you went on the nfl.com website where they have all the draft uh breakdowns and all the analysis and from all the scouts and all that and if you went there and looked up Damian mama's uh bio or you know section they would have told you he's uh you know fourth fifth round so you know were they wrong yeah uh can they keep those up to date? I I don't know. Uh, if they'd have said you know seventh round or undrafted free agent, would that have changed things? Uh, yeah, I think maybe. Uh, so uh, how does how does the you know NFL get that kind of intelligence? Because a lot of the teams they aren't going to want to tell you, and when they get down to those lower rounds, they really don't know uh, because they don't know who's going to be available and who's going to take who. I mean, who would have guessed probably that, say, Leon McQuay gets picked in the sixth round before Stevie, uh, Tui Kalavatu, or, or that, or Justin Davis doesn't get picked at all. It's, uh, it's not a science exactly. And, uh, how you make sure all those guys hear all, because they're, they're not just hearing from the USC coaches, they're hearing from their family and friends, and they're hearing from, their agent and there's a lot of voices in their heads as to you know what their what their value is and where they're going to go and a lot of those voices are coming from people who really like them and really want them to do well and see all the good things about them so it may not be uh, all that easy to and it's to be really specific and I'm, i'm trying to think some of the usc wide receivers if you went on the different boards where they evaluated everybody in the country who was eligible, and you could see a variance like of a Darius Rogers of like 100 positions, it's just wide receiver. You know, where one service would have him at number 55 and somebody else would have him at 170 or whatever. I mean, it's for absolutely certain not a science and not exact. And um, uh, I don't know how you could make make it any more, you know, absolute that these guys get get the best information as to how the draft's going to turn out because you just really don't know. I mean, there's just so many unknowables, and I think it was more difficult. Everybody who we talked to this year said this draft was more difficult to figure out than any they could remember. I mean. Who would have thought last year that, you know, that, uh, the, the Rams would go the direction they did or this year that the Bears would go for Mitch Trubisky and like the Rams trade up in order to get, get him at number two. And, uh, you know, that's like one of those head slapping moves that you just think, golly, how did that happen? So, yeah. Uh, so I I don't know we're ever going to be able to tell this kid specifically and absolutely this is where you're going and if you know you, you just try to give them as much information as you can but, but i'm not sure that anybody on the usc offensive staff had a good feeling about where damien was going to go
1: all right uh let's move on there yeah, and like you said there's some uh it's not always that they want to come back to school if there's you know There'd have to be overwhelming evidence that you're not going to get drafted or even so, maybe it doesn't matter, you know? Uh, so I think in this case, it was something where Damian Wama, you know, didn't necessarily want to be in school anymore. And, uh, and you know, we'll see if he, if he makes a team, it'll work out fine for him. Uh, we saw Nicole Roby and stuff, you know, where people didn't get drafted and they made teams or, or they got drafted late and it's worked out okay. Um, a couple of questions on the team, Dan from Tarek. He wants to know first, do you think that since Deontay Burnett, has the slot position locked down that Stephen Mitchell will get a look at one of the outside positions in the fall.
0: Oh absolutely yeah. I, I think there's a lot of interchangeability available in this, this you know, in their system. And I think, you know, they want the young guys to know all the positions. Uh, you have to expect that, you know, Steven does and Steven wants to be on the field. So absolutely, yeah. No, I think uh I think there's gonna be mix and matching all over the place, and uh, I think that's going to be one of the the features of this offense is they don't really want you to be able to know where everybody's going to be, or where they're going to be is going to signal what's coming. I think they're just going to be. Uh, I think they're going to have a, a a real ability to you know kind of camouflage what they're doing. And run different things with different people in different positions. So uh, I'm looking at that as a as a strength, uh, especially with a with a guy who, if Stephen, you know, comes all the way back from the surgery, and with his uh, you know experience, that he can he can do whatever they whatever they they need him to do. And I think he'll be uh, thrilled to death to you know to get that chance.
1: He had one more about the running backs. He said with uh, Ronald Jones, uh, Aka Cedric Ware, Vavai, Dominic Davis, if all those guys are healthy, would it be a good idea for Stephen Carr, the incoming freshman, five-star running back, to redshirt and learn the system so he doesn't have to burn a year where carries will be very limited?
0: See, I think it's overstated that, that you're going, by redshirting a kid as a freshman, you're going to get him for five years. I mean, my guess would be a player like, an athlete like Stephen Carr, four years would be uh, the max that you could possibly expect him to be at USC. So I don't think you're losing anything by playing him as, as much time as he deserves as a freshman. Uh, I know, you know, you could make the case for young offensive linemen who haven't grown into their bodies and really haven't developed and all that, but... I always thought that those were the guys, or maybe quarterbacks when you got them in a 1-2-3 you know, system, uh, that are going to take some time. But I think for running backs, uh, I don't know that, that it, it, a red shirt is something you really even want to think about. I do know this. They think Stephen Carr can do some things, especially as a receiver out of the backfield, that will elevate this offense, give them the ability to do things that they haven't been able to do. So, uh, so I'd be a little surprised. That would probably be, uh, outthinking yourself if you, if you did that. I, I would think that thought is, is not in anybody's mind, probably for sure not in Steven's mind. And, uh, so no, I, I, I don't think, I don't see a red shirt possibility there at all.
1: Uh, one more on the team. Does Andrew Voorhees have a real shot at winning the right tackle spot over Clayton Johnston, or do you think Voorhees is considered a guard at this point? Thank you and fight on Michael Elliott, Class of USC
0: 2005. Hey, Michael. I don't know. Uh, what? Uh, I think he's got a shot at winning a spot somewhere or being really in the mix, uh, whether that's guard or tackle. I don't think maybe we know enough about him. As a tackle, I think, you know, they felt pretty comfortable with him as a guard. Uh, so I don't, I don't know, uh, how that's going to play out. And I don't think, I don't think that's, those are the kinds of things that you can play out in your mind. I think those are the ones you just let happen on the field. And there are little differences in, you know, guard and tackle and exactly the offense that you're running now and in the pass game and the run game and and lots of little things that that until you actually see them play out um you really don't know i mean there are just little moves and little lateral ability to get from here to there um that you have to see actually happen you know full speed and uh i just think andrew will be in the mix he looks like he belongs Um I like the way he um, I I mean I like the way he looks in that li- in that offensive line. He looks like he belongs there. Exactly which position he looks like he belongs at. Uh I think I'm gonna let that play out, uh over the summer where he picks up, you know, the offense uh and then um uh, and then the twenty nine uh, you know, fall practices and we'll see. But uh but uh with the other freshmen coming in, um, you know, three or so of them who also are going to probably try to make a run at, at getting in the rotation. Um, I think you have to play Andrew off against those as well as the, the more veteran guys and the guys, you know, uh, coming back from, um, from surgery like Toa and Nika, Nico, and, and all of that. So, uh, he'll be he'll be there uh, he he's a bonus he is a guy who when you looked at this class i don't think you realized what kind of a player you were getting i, I just he, again that's a, an example of you gotta see him, and they show up and then you you really have you know much better than than what you've got on paper or what you've even got on video and uh, he's one of those guys that you think wow well that's what a break there. This kid can, can play and maybe right away. So, so I'm not going to pencil him in on on any position, just in that offensive line somewhere.
1: All right, let's move on. We got Reggie in Seattle. He said, non-football related question. Uh, On the last podcast, you and Dan discussed limitations of scholarships for sports like baseball. My question is, although the schools are limited to 11 full scholarships and a few partial, not sure how many partial scholarships they can offer, but I'd like to know if these athletes can apply for other non-sports scholarships that most universities offer. For instance, if a benefactor sets up an academic or other scholarship at a school with the intent of this scholarship going to athletes, is this legal and does it occur? It would seem plausible that schools would simply try to ask these athletes to apply for a secondary scholarship set up for this reason. Fight on, uh Reggie.
0: Yeah, no, Reggie, it's not. Uh, you're right. Schools would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, you're allowed <clears throat> 11.7 in baseball. And that's just ridiculous considering you needed about a 30 man roster, uh, you know, for the number of games they play and the number of pitchers they need and the num- all of that. And, and, you know, baseball probably has the worst deal of anybody. And that hurts USC probably more than anybody because they are surrounded by so many nationally competitive programs where it's a whole lot cheaper uh to you know if you split up a scholarship which you're allowed to do in baseball uh paying a half tuition or whatever at a you know at a cal state fullerton or uc irvine a long beach state uh ucla uh even uh uh, uc uh riverside you know it's had a a pretty good, good program uc santa barbara uh Those schools, it's, it's so much more difficult, uh, and that's the difference between private school USC and say private school Vanderbilt or private school Rice, private school Stanford. Private school Stanford basically has an endowment that allows every student in, in school whose family has a, you know, a family income of under $100,000, something like that, to be basically on full, uh, you know, tuition scholarship kind of like the Ivy Leagues do it. And if you do it for the entire student body, then it's available to athletes and doesn't count as an athletic scholarship. But if it's something that you're already on a, uh, an athletic scholarship or a partial scholarship and then you, you get another scholarship on top of that, uh, you have to, I think in most cases, that has to be considered as ath- against the athletic uh, limitations Grant. and grants. Uh, and I know, long, long, long time ago, uh, Kentucky basketball, when Adolph Rupp was starting a program that became kind of the first modern college basketball dynasty, and he had he had like eight All Americans on one team, three full teams that. All three of them, 15 players, could have won the Southeastern Conference. Uh, A couple of them might have been able to win a national championship. And as it turned out, he had guys on there with tennis scholarships, you know, and any sport you wanted. They had, you know, scholarships more than the average team could have. And so they're not going to let you do that now. They're not going to let schools who maybe don't care about one sport to uh, figure out a way to use those scholarships in another sport uh, so it's like I think we you know our, uh, the Cunningham kid couldn't even as a football player coming out of high school at Bishop Gorman uh, come in on a track scholarship he couldn't play football for two years or he would have had to have that count as a foot against the football scholarship 85 limit so yeah, they're they're pretty uh, they're pretty strict as far as the way they allow you to uh, designate and break up and divide scholarships with with other aid with other outside aid.
1: It kind of took me back to down memory lane when I got all these scholarship questions and the sanctions hit. And basically, the answer is always no. Nope, you can't do that. Like, well, could he put no? Like, could would he no? You can't do it. Like, so do you have some <laughs> idea? You have some idea you could get another scholarship in for football? Yeah, you can't do that. So that was basically the answer. Um, one last topic, uh, about these, uh, we had two questions about the massive, uh, ESPN layoffs that happened, uh, last week. I'll read them both to you and get your thoughts. First is uh Clayton class of 2011. He said in the wake of the massive ESPN layoffs, do you see this as a shift away from the giant broadcasting contracts? And if so, does this mean that USC and the PAC 12 have missed their opportunity to cash in on huge broadcasting contracts that the other conferences will benefit so much from? Thanks for all you guys do. You make following USC football so much more enjoyable. Great job on the podcast. So that's from Clayton. And then Stephen Poway wrote in, dad, you talked a lot about the huge television contracts and other conferences have negotiated with, with the major networks like ESPN, Fox Sports, et cetera. To the mass layoffs at ESPN, calling the question the long-term viability of those contracts. And if so, might the Pac-12 network approach prove to be a better system long-term? That's interesting. Just wondering. Thanks, Stephen Poway. So thanks for Clayton and Stephen, uh, Steve
0: for those. I mean, good questions. And, and Clayton and Stephen, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows uh, what Stephen just referenced is, you know, uh, the next PAC-12 contract doesn't come up till 2024-25. And, you know, the PAC-12 was the first of the major conferences that got the chance to get the, get, they got the first bite of the apple. And, uh, and they got the big hit up from where they had been, which was like nowhere, unfortunately, in the, the old days with, with Tom Hansen, a, a nice man, but not, you know, really up on where what could possibly be, you know, be happening in, in, in college broadcast. Uh, so they got the big hit, and, and, and um, uh, it looked like, you know, Larry Scott was this ge- wizard and genius and blah, blah, blah. It was more a case that they were in the right place at the right time now to have been basically, you know, supplanted by everybody else. So, um, uh, you know, that the SEC and the Big Ten have just, you know, flown past them, the ACC uh, a little bit, the Big 12 right there for, you know, not nearly as good a product. And one wonders where does this go? down the road in terms of uh, you know the big broadcast networks being able to handle this um, I, I just think it's so far down the road I mean you know USC would they be better off for example trying to be the Notre Dame of the west coast and trying to you know get a deal going with uh, somebody like NBC and saying well you can have two games every Saturday Notre Dame early and USC late and Try to work out one of those deals where you're, you know, in a conference for all the sports and you're half in it for football the way Notre Dame is with the ACC. I don't know. You know, I think there are a lot of, there are a whole lot of different ways to be looking at this. And USC better start looking at those ways. And the the Pac 12 better start looking at those ways. I mean, is there a way that you can save it for, let's say, four, you know 16 team super conferences where you have an east and a west and you know eight teams in each each uh, conference and where you'd you know have a pac 12 West or and, and a big you know the big 12 provides you most of the east and uh, you know where you could incorporate Texas and Oklahoma no schools on the on the east side and and you meet you know the in effect each conference is uh, conference championship is basically the first round of an 18 college football playoff. Uh, I think there's so much that, that could be happening as a result of this. Uh, uh, I know people say, you know, owning your own rights and having the ability to, you know, put the, put it out, you know, to, you know, people's cell phones and all their, you know, different devices. And I just, I don't know. If that necessarily is 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 the way this is all going to go, but I don't think anybody knows, and um, and I'm almost thinking if the Pac-12 somehow, you know, stumbled onto the right answer, I'm not I'm not convinced they could you know they could carry out uh, you know carry it out, and and I don't know the viability of broadcast, um, you know, when it's going to, it seems like they're going to be scarcer and scarcer dollars for broadcast. And how viable are contracts where Oregon State and Washington State, you know, attract the same dollars as USC? I mean, is that long-term viable? I don't know. And is USC going to be happy with the situation where, where, they're sharing equal dollars with programs much less expensive to run with much, you know, much fewer demands and much uh, less costly places to run them and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I think there are a lot of questions. and I don't think anybody has any really good answers right now, but I think that the key is to keep asking those questions. And keep, you know... Well, what if, what if, what, if, and, and I, I don't, I don't think we know, I know this ESPN knows that their model probably doesn't work and that, uh, people aren't going to, you know, stay, you know, bundled and paying for, uh, you know, ESPN is the, you know, the highest cost, uh, you know, cable provider that's, you know, on all the basic services is they don't watch sports and, it's also harder, for example, how do you make SportsCenter really viable for people who already know all the results? You know, 10, 15 years ago, everybody didn't know all the results or they've seen all the highlights. I mean, you know, you go on Twitter, you can see the highlight play from the game you're interested in that's not the game you're at. Do you, do you then, get when you get home, do you then want to sit down and watch SportsCenter? You've already seen, you know who won that other game or those other games. You've seen that the highlight plays. What could they do on SportsCenter to make it, that you know, a value to you? Uh, so, uh, you know, ESPN's got a lot of things to think about. And, uh, you know, the way their, you know, viewers are plummeting. Um, and yet, I don't think their college football is necessarily – the place where they want to take it out. I mean, if I'm uh, ESPN, I'm looking at, say, the NBA, $1.5 billion NBA contract and saying, what the hell were we thinking with that? But I don't think college football is in the same place. I don't think anybody looks at college football, at the really top-level college football, and says, well, I don't think that's a that's such a good deal. I think college football obviously and the NFL are you know, the two places where cable could say, Well we don't have a lot of money, but this is where we can spend our money. Uh I think those would be the two. Now, major league baseball and and um uh, and hockey and and uh uh the NBA would be of less uh I would think they would be um in the long-term future, maybe not have as good a future as college football. But the problem with college football is you have a number of programs who are really solid, locked in, and when they're good, everybody wants to watch them. Uh, But there are a lot of programs in college football that aren't in that same place. Where do they end up? How does this all work its way through? Man, I don't, I do not think we have any clue as to how that's going to happen. Just keep asking those questions
1: though. Yeah, great questions. And, uh, we'll, we'll see. It's, uh, playing out right in front of us and there's probably going to be more cuts and, you know, I don't know. I, my gut is that the PAC 12 missed a, a big window there and, uh, we'll see, but they, they just made some bad decisions in my opinion and, uh, we'll have to see, but we're not going to know for years and years.
0: So. <laughs> Yes, I think the twelve-year deal that they, they agreed to was probably not not good, and yeah. and they shared it between ESPN and and, and and Fox shared it, yeah. And basically, neither one wanted the other one to get it, and it was a decent amount of money at the time. So they they basically said, "Okay, we'll we'll take this on." Would USC have been better off if they would have gotten uh, sugar daddy like you know the uh, uh, the SEC has with CBS? Or uh, you know maybe you know or Notre Dame with NBC or uh, you know I think probably ESPN has a better deal with you know the um, Big Ten and 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 ACC uh, maybe you know and you know would they have been better off to have their own network uh, affiliated with either ESPN or Fox instead of saying unaffiliated. Well, you know, it, it certainly seems to be helping uh, the SEC. They've got their network with ESPN. They've got the connection with CBS. You know, SEC has two networks carrying their water. I'm not sure, the you know, the Pac-12 has anybody carrying its water. And so, you know, you're already three time zones away. And, you know, with, with that, you know, geographic distance and, and time difference and all that, uh, and then you're not connected, uh, the way, you know, the Big Ten is with Fox for their network or, or the SEC is with ESPN. The PAC-12 is kind of on the outside looking in, uh, when some of this goes down. And, uh, USC can overcome that. I don't think there's any question. USC has the clout, the history, uh, you know, all of that, that when USC is good, it doesn't matter what, what the PAC-12 situation is. But, uh, But what that does for USC, when the more you think about that, you say, well, it's because it's USC, not because it's the Pac-12. You know, you're you're not going to ever hear anybody chanting, you know, like they do SEC, SEC. I don't think I've ever heard in my life a Pac-12 chant. I mean, you can't even figure out how to chant Pac-12 like SEC, but. It isn't going to happen. You know, in the Pac-12, it's every man for himself. And USC really is coming from a place in college football where none of the others are. And so how does that play out? I don't know. But I think USC should, we say, you, you know, keep asking those questions. USC really has to be asking those questions of itself. Where do we go from here? What are the best solutions? How do we work this out? You know, and not be afraid of the answers.
1: Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, man, a lot of different topics today. I, I told everyone it was a packed show. It certainly was, but great job. And, uh, thanks again for coming on.
0: Uh, good questions. Thanks a lot for the questions. Uh, and, and catch that, uh, National Geographic documentary, everybody. I, I think it's really worth thinking about when you see those videos.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, it's- Tripped out memory lane for me and definitely seen a lot of stuff I hadn't seen before. So, good stuff. Uh, that's Dan Weber. Make sure you uh, check him out on uscfootball.com, our great beat writer and columnist. I hope you guys enjoyed this show. Might try to squeak in another one this week. Uh, I'm going to head to a 7-on-7 tournament this afternoon. So, maybe we'll do a little recruiting with Gerard. I don't have to get with him on that and see. But send us your questions in. If you have any Riot stuff or whatever, anything, uh, send it to <laughs> podcast at uscfootball.com. And we'd love to hear from you. So, thanks. That's for Dan Weber. I'm Ryan Abraham.